Anyway, tonight we are in Romans chapter 9. Afterwards, okay. Romans chapter 9. We reluctantly left a couple of weeks ago Romans chapter 8 after about two months, three months. It was a while. Got stuck there, didn't want to leave. To see that sovereign hand of God upon us for good, to see the security we have in Christ, what a joy it is. Well, the love of God will never leave. Height, depth, length, the breadth, no matter what, God is going to remain faithful and loving. The immediate question would be, well, what about the Jews? It seemed that God's faithfulness, that God's love, wasn't enough to keep them to follow him. They've all denied the Messiah. Paul says, my heart's broken over that. I wish I could go to hell and let them go to heaven. I would do it. But, he says in verse 6, as we saw last week, the word of God is not, not of no effect because they didn't believe. You could have the dirtiest person in this room and he could have a whole closet full of soap. That doesn't mean that the soap was no effect. It means he didn't use it. <laughs> In the same way, God's word was sufficient enough to lead them to the Messiah. But they didn't see it. Now, he quickly points out, not everybody who's Israel is really of Israel. The word Israel means governed by God. Not everybody who's of the seed of Abraham is governed by God. For example, Ishmael. Oh, you say, well, hold it, hold it. Ishmael was of a, an adulterous relationship with a pagan woman who was an Egyptian, Hagar, easy to discount. Well, according to the Jewish custom, he still was the firstborn. And because he was the firstborn, he was to be recognized as the heir to Abraham, but God said, no way. I'm going to choose the younger son, Isaac, who's of promise. As you remember, Sarah and Abraham could not naturally have kids, but supernaturally, God allowed it at the age of 99 and 90. And so he is the son of promise. But you say, well, I don't know if that's really fair because he was of a pagan woman. It was an adulterous relationship. I don't think you proved your point, okay? What about Jacob and Esau? Not only were they born of the same man and of the same woman of promise, they were born at the same time. <laughs> they were twins. And Esau was the older by a fraction of a second. But nevertheless, he was the one to get all of the right. How does the dad feel about it? His dad said Esau's the one. But yet, his dad wouldn't identify Jacob, but God identified Jacob. Remember when Esau later came in, he was tricked by his brother Jacob. He said, but bless me, me also, Father. And he said, I gave all the blessing away already, thinking I was giving it to you. I gave it all. I didn't leave anything for Jacob. He had it in for his own son. God turns it around and says, I don't care what man thinks. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, which seems to be the implication that Isaac loved Esau and hated Jacob. All the blessing was going to go to Esau. Nothing was going to be left to Jacob. Now, we've got to be careful with that verse because remember from last week, Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, when he says, Jacob I loved, he was referring to the nation of Israel. Esau I hated, he was referring to the nation of Edom. And so if you follow out the lineage, Israel, God continued to bless. Edom ended up being destroyed and annihilated and no longer in existence. And so that lineage that God was going to bless would be the lineage of Jacob. Aaron, you want to turn that air conditioner off right there? And... Uh, did you turn it on, Aaron? 
Would you turn it on? What are you smiling for then? Just turn it off. <laughs> I turned it off a second ago and somebody else turned it on. You see all these ladies up here shivering, you know, and all these big fat guys going, ah, oh, hot, I'm hot. We'll, we'll cater to the women. And also, I hate the cold, so, you know, a little, little partial. Now, I didn't say you were fat. I said the fat guys. If the shoe fits, I mean, I, but I didn't say that. I didn't. Okay. Anyway, going back. Now, the question comes back, but God chose them before they were yet born. God said the younger will serve the older, which wasn't customary. So it comes back going, is that fair? Can God do that? Before they were yet born? Is that fair? And of course the answer is no, that's not fair. God's not fair. And every one of us in this room are quite thankful that he's not fair. Fair is Jacob I hate, Esau I hate, and I'm sending everybody to hell. That's fair. We don't want fair. Now, is it wrong for God to choose some for heaven since everybody's going to hell? Is it wrong for God to choose some for heaven? Is there unrighteousness with God? So these first 13 verses bring about three skeptical questions. The first skeptic question is found there in verse 14. Well, what shall we say? Is there unrighteousness with God? The second question is found down in verse 19. Well, what does, how, why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? And the third question is found in verse 30. What shall we say then? And so as we look at these three questions, basically as an indictment to the skeptic against God because he's a sovereign God. God is who he is. God knows the end from the beginning. Is it wrong that God knows the end from the beginning? No, no it's not. Is it wrong since God knows the end from the beginning to go ahead and make decisions on that fact? No, it's not wrong for God to make decisions on the fact that he knows the end from the beginning. Now the problem is, is that people want to say, since God knows the end from the beginning, then God has to be the creator of evil. And so you say, did God know when he made that most beautiful angel, Lucifer, did he know that Lucifer would turn on him? Did he know that Lucifer would become evil? Did he know that Lucifer would cause Adam and Eve to fall? Did he know that Lucifer would ultimately go to hell and cause many to go with him? Before he ever created Lucifer, did God know all that? Of course, God knows everything. Aha, I gotcha. Since God knew it in advance, therefore God created evil. Since he created Lucifer, knowing he would be evil. No. Just because God knows the future doesn't mean that God makes the future. There's a humongous difference. And if you read in the creation story, everything that God did and it was good. In a nutshell, what is evil really? Evil is the absence of good. It's not solely that, but the most part of it is that. In other words, if you will find an evil, you will find that there was a possible good that wasn't done. And so you say, well, somebody was murdered. The absence of love. Somebody was lied to. The absence of truth. There was adultery the opposite of purity, the absence of purity. And so had there been truth, there wouldn't have been the lie. Had there been love, there wouldn't have been the murder. And so really it's the absence of that good quality that makes evil. And so therefore, in a nutshell, if there is a possible good, you must do that good. And if you don't do that good, you have done evil. 
And so for God not to have made Lucifer would have been evil, even though he knew he was going to do evil. Oh, how is that? Well, picture if you would. You're drying yourself off after you got out of the swimming pool. And you're getting ready to go watch a rerun of Bonanza. And you can't wait to get there because Haas is sick. And you, you've, you've been waiting to see this episode for all week. It's been announced. And you're drying yourself off just in time to go pour yourself some V8 juice and sit down in front of the boob tube. And behind you, you hear a splash. And you look over, and there, the little one-year-old kid from next door had made his way. Somebody left the gate open and fell into the pool. And you think, man, if I take the time to fish this kid out of the pool, I'm going to miss the first part of Bonanza. And so you ignore him. And you go on in, shut the sliding glass door, pour your glass of V8 juice, and turn on Bonanza. In a few minutes, you hear the ambulance coming. They fish the little baby out of the pool. He's dead. Now, did you do anything evil? Did you push the kid in the pool? Did you get the broom and dunk him underwater? Did you, what did you do? You did nothing. But isn't your absence of good evil? Isn't the fact that when you could have didn't done good, you didn't do it? Isn't that in and of itself evil? Absolutely. You could have saved a life, you didn't. That's the same as murder. You could have done good, you didn't do good, therefore evil abounds. And so when God made Lucifer, it was good. Now, if he didn't make Lucifer, since it was good, if God wouldn't have made it, it would have been evil, because God could have done a possible good and didn't do it, therefore it would have been evil. But he knew he would be evil. But just because he knows it doesn't mean that he that he's did it himself. For example, I'm going to give all of you the ability to know the future for three months. Now, you happen to know that there's three guys that live across the street from you who are dealing and selling and making drugs. Now, since you know the future, you know that if you go across the street and you knock on the front door and you say, guys, I have something to talk to you about, and they all sit down and you say, you're all sinners. And Jesus Christ came to die for sinners, and he died on the cross for you, and and you're right now going to hell because of your wicked ways. But if you will repent, Christ will come and save you by the blood of the cross. One of those guys is deeply touched, and he gets on his knees right there, and he prays with you, and he receives Christ. He immediately goes and finds all his contacts and hands them a track, and 300 of them come to know Christ. And the other two guys, they hate the fact that they don't have their buddy, who's really the brains behind the operation, who made all the drugs. They don't have him helping them anymore. As a matter of fact, he moved out. Their drug cartel is going down, and their connections, many of them, they didn't know their friend. And they get angry at you that you pulled their friend away from them. And so they come over and they kill you. And they kill your family. And in the midst of a high-speed chase, fleeing from the police, they run over two old people crossing the street. They run over a lady and her brand-new baby who she's pushing across the, the, the street. And then finally it ends with crashing into the side of a school bus where 50 school-age children are killed. Now, do you go share the Lord with those three guys? You know that one of them gets saved and three people go to heaven because you did share the Lord. But if you don't share the Lord, nobody dies. What do you do? If you don't go share with that, those three guys, you are evil because you could have saved a life and didn't do it. But did you know evil was going to abound from your good? Yes, you did know that. But what part of taking place in evil did you do? You went and you shared the Lord. What evil is there in that? Did evil come 
as a reaction or a response to your good. Yes, it did. But just because you knew evil would happen doesn't mean you made the evil. Now, if God knows man's end from his beginning, God knows those who will receive him if the gospel comes, just like you knew. So therefore, if God knows Jacob would respond to God's goodness, and he knows that Esau would not respond to his goodness, and God wanting to have a godly line that would eventually tie into the Messiah, Jesus Christ, wouldn't it be prudent for him to choose the person who would in heart, not in outward appearance, but in heart, because in outward appearance it seemed like Esau was the more noble person. Jacob was always sneaky and deviant, but he knew ultimately that Jacob would have a purer and a truer heart towards the things of God. Therefore, he chose Jacob, even though he was a younger, even though he was the more outward deviant one, eventually he would become what God wanted him to be, so he chose the younger. Is there unrighteousness with God because he knew the future and made the best possible decision? Now, there's some of you, there's smokes coming out your ears. It's like, whoa, this is too heavy. It is a little heavy. It's a little heady. But this is the question that's being asked. Is there unrighteousness with God? The answer is absolutely not. Did God know that Adam and Eve would sin? Yes, he knew Adam and Eve would sin. It says in Revelation 13:8 that Christ was crucified before the foundations of the world. That before he ever made the world, he knew that man was sinning. He knew ultimately he'd have to die to demonstrate his love for man. God knew all of that. Well, why didn't he just not make man? Since he knew man would end up evil. Because there was a possible good. And he knew that good would come. Even though also evil would come, he also knew good would come. And therefore, God chose God did. And everything God did was good. Everything God chose was out of a heart of love, out of a heart of purity, out of a heart of righteousness, out of a heart of rightness, out of fairness? No. Because if you want fairness, you want justice, we all lose. Therefore, he says in verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now he says that, if you go back into, cha into Exodus chapter 33, it was right after they sinned by making the golden calf. Remember, Moses breaks the Ten Commandments, not breaking them as sinning, but I mean literally breaking the stones. And he comes down, and they're worshiping this calf. And then, in judgment, God causes 3,000 Israelites to die. Some he had mercy on, some he didn't have mercy on. Moses said, he drew the line, he says, if you're for God, get on this side. And some hardened their heart and said, no, I'm not for God. And those 3,000 died. Some were hardened, some had compassion. He had mercy on some. Now in verse 16, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. There is none of us who came to Christ because we saw this was the frugal thing to do. We just figured out one day, Ah, I've got it all figured out. There is a God. And this God is a God of purity and love. And there is sin in my life. Now, somewhere along the line, there must have been a God who paid the way for me. And as I look through history, it's 1998. I go back to 1998. I follow 1997, 1996, 19, and I finally get back to the year zero. What significant thing happened? Jesus Christ was born on this earth. That's why the whole dating system is. Wow, the whole dating system in the world is around this one person, Jesus Christ. I wonder if he claimed to be God. Oh, he did. I wonder if he said he would pay the way for man. Oh, he did. Hmm. I therefore have figured out that he is God, therefore I will now give my life into serving him. Nobody came to Christ that way. All of us were wicked. All of us knew we were doing wrong and we wanted it because it satisfied our flesh. 
We knew we were hurting others. We knew we were hurting ourselves. We did not care. We knew God wanted us to pray. We did not want to pray. We knew God wanted us to go to church. We did not want to go to church. We knew God wanted us to follow his commandments. We did not want to follow his commandments. We were an enemy of God. We did not aid. We did not assist. We did not help in our salvation. How did we come to Christ? God in his infinite mercy poured his Holy Spirit of conviction upon us. It says in John 6, he convicted us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We understood we were sinners and we were pierced to the heart because of our sin. And we mourned over our sinful past. Is that because we were more righteous than anybody else? No. It's because God sovereignly had mercy upon us and he helped us ache over our sin. He also helped us know there was a perfect righteousness and we could never attain to it no matter what we would do. We could never make up for one past sin. How did we come to that knowledge? God, he put that knowledge within our heart, within our mind. And he let us know there is a hell to come, so hurry up, make the right decision. And we said, okay, God, I choose you. But what do we find in John chapter 15, verse 16? Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. What do we find in John chapter 1, verse 12? He says very plainly there, it's not to them who were born of the will of man or of the will of flesh or of the blood, but it was of God. It wasn't our willing it. It wasn't our determination. It wasn't inherited through the bloodline. How did we receive it? God. And in reality, when people say, how did you come to Christ? We really can't say. We just say, he came and got me. As Billy Graham says, he's the hound of heaven. He treed me. He showed me my sinful ways, and I couldn't do anything but to say, God, come into my life. How did we get saved? By a supernatural, divine work of God. What part did we play in that? We did respond. Now, a lot of people mistake here that chapter 9 has all the truth on salvation. It doesn't. Chapter 10 is going to tell us that we have to believe. We have to call on the name of the Lord. But chapter 9 is simply pointing from God's point of view. It's God who did it. We received it. God did 100% of the work of salvation. He called us. He paid the price ahead of time. He drew us unto himself. He showed us our sinful condition. He showed us the judgment to come. We were flat on our backs with no place to go but unto him. Now, could we have rejected him at that moment? Yes, we could. Prove it. The very next verse. In one word, Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh... For to this same purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. If there's one guy that was flat on his back, who had nowhere else but to look up, Pharaoh was in that place. He saw the powerful hand of God. But yet... Out of all the people who had more information, who saw more miracles, who saw the divine finger of God himself and even his own sorcerers, believed. But yet he wouldn't believe. Why? Because God hardened his heart. You say, hold it. Is that fair? Well, yeah, it is. Why? Well, because Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, did God know it in advance? Yes, he did. That's why he went ahead and hardened his heart. Turn over, if you would, to the book of Exodus, chapter 7, verse 3. And we're getting ready to look at a number of scriptures there in Exodus. Exodus, chapter 7, verse 3. 
Now, this is God speaking to Moses ahead of time before he's even gone down to Egypt yet. And to, um, actually, he's gone down to Egypt, but before he's seen Pharaoh, and he lets him know there in Exodus chapter 7, verse 3, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now, you say, gee, did God harden Pharaoh's heart before Moses ever got there? No. That's not what happened, and some people have taught that, and it's wrong. Notice there, we're going to just, you might want to mark these verses. We're going to look at 16 of them. In chapter 7, verse 13 now, after the first, uh, Moses goes down with his rod, and he shows him the miracle, and it says, Pharaoh hardened heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Then look over in chapter two, or chapter um, 7, verse 14 now. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Look over at verse 22. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Look at chapter 8, verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief he what hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said look at verse 19 of chapter 8 then the magician said to Pharaoh this is the finger of God but Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them just as the Lord had said in chapter 8 verse 32 but Pharaoh hardened his heart as this time also, at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Chapter 9, verse 7. Pharaoh sent, and indeed, not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. Chapter 9, verse 12. Now we hear a different tune. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But it wasn't till after seven times a total of eight times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And the word here in the Greek, Kazakh, the transliteration is C-H-A-Z-A-Q. And that verse, if you look, one of the last ways of translating it is hardened. The best translation here would be, he causatively strengthened him. It, it, it literally is the word to firm up. And so literally, the Lord firmed up Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's saying, this is the direction I want to go. And God's saying, okay, I'll agree with you. That's your decision. And I'm going to even confirm your decision and use it to my advantage. Therefore, when Pharaoh hardened his heart in the first uh, five plagues, it was Pharaoh's harden, hardness. But then in the last five plagues, it would be through God's hardness. So five of those plagues, God was able to make his name known because of Pharaoh's own hardness. But in the last five doings of God, God's name would be uh, exalted through God hardening Pharaoh's heart as well. So when you make that decision to say, I don't want God, God will put his hand on top of yours saying, I agree, you don't want me. And I'm going to go ahead and confirm your decision and make it that much harder. And I'm going to use your hardness to my own advantage. And as we go on there in verse 34, um, chapter 9, verse 34, And Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hell and the thunder had ceased, and he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart. He and his servants, so he hardens it back. But now, from here on forward, God hardens his own, hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10, verse 1, and there God says, I have hardened his heart. In chapter 10, verse 20, he says, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's heart. <laughs> Did I say that backwards? The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then in verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 11, verse 10, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. In chapter 14, verse 4, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, so he will pursue them, and then I'll gain honor over Pharaoh and all his family as he hardens his heart to go right into the sea. And then finally, 
the 16th time. There in verse 8, And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel, and the children of Israel went out with boldness. Added up, eight times he hardened his heart, and eight times God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Interesting, isn't it? Eight times Pharaoh hardened his heart, and eight times God hardened Pharaoh's heart, if you add them up. So you say here, gee, God in advance had already planned to harden Pharaoh's heart. God already knew in advance Pharaoh would harden his heart. Well, that doesn't seem fair that God would go ahead and say that he was going to do it when Pharaoh yet hadn't done it. That's from your human standpoint. I agree. For you to say that, it would be evil. Because that means you are planning on manipulating the future. But God is not manipulating the future. Oh, yes, he is. He said he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. No, 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 no. God already saw. Remember, God sees the end from the beginning. Like you would look at a yardstick. You see those three feet. You see the beginning and the end of that three feet. So God sees the beginning and the end of time. It's not this difficult thing I sort of see in the past. Oh, yeah, I see dinosaurs, you know. And, oh, I see in the future. Oh, I can almost see the heavenly gates. God sees it perfectly right in front of him very clearly. He doesn't see the past better than the future. He doesn't see the future better than the present. He sees them all equally. And he already saw Pharaoh would harden his heart. And therefore, he had already planned ahead of time to use Pharaoh's hardness, confirming his hardness, to make his name known. Now, you're here tonight saying... I've got a mean boss. And man, they are just really making life difficult for me. Do you think God already knew that? Yes. Do you think it's possible that God is using their hardness of heart to cause my life to be difficult for some purpose? Absolutely. That's what we learned. And Romans chapter 8, verse 28. For we know that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. On the way here tonight, I got in a car wreck. And I think my car's totaled. Do you think there's a reason? Absolutely. God knew about that car wreck in advance? Of course he did. I found out from the doctor today. I've got cancer. Do you think God has a purpose in it? Absolutely. He already knew about it. He had the sands of your life in his hands before you were even born. The Bible says in Psalms 139, David said, before there was any days, before I'd even lived any days on earth, it had already been written in the volumes of the books. It had already been written of me. Now, this whole concept is rather mind-boggling because we and our finite minds are trying to picture God with his infinite mind and we very quickly <laughs> hit the wall. And we in our sinful condition say, I think I can use this predestination stuff to my advantage. How? Well, I figured out. If God already chose me, then he already saw me in heaven with him, so I can go live it up. Interesting. Because that sounds to me like a hardness of heart. Oh, no, it's not. No, it's not. It does to me. If my wife came to me and said, Brian, no matter what, I will never divorce you. Hmm. That sounds fun. Because there's some people I want to commit adultery with. And I didn't want to lose you, but now I can have my cake and eat it too. Didn't that sound a little warped to you? Doesn't that sound a little hard-hearted to you? Doesn't it sound downright wicked? Of course it does. And so if you want to try to play the predestination game, you will be checkmated by God and you will lose. Well, why did God let us know this? To comfort us. 
because we sin, we blow it, we struggle, we have a hard time, and we often think, God, if you're learning as I am learning, if you're experiencing as I am presently experiencing, you may be getting frustrated with me as much as I am getting frustrated with me. And I am ready to throw me away, and it's very possible that you're ready to throw me away. But we stop and say, no, God already knows my end from my beginning. We read in the Old Testament about Judas before he was yet born. And what do we find there in Luke chapter 22? The night before Jesus was to be crucified, that, that he, he says, I already know the future. At the dinner table, he says, I already know the future. One of you is going to betray me. I already know the future. One of you is going to deny me three times about when the cock crows. Matter of fact, I can already see it. You're going to deny me for the third time, and then you're going to hear the cock-a-doodle-doo. God already saw his sins before he sinned. God is not shocked by our weaknesses. God is not shocked by our sins. But he's always disappointed. He's always bummed out. And we always pay the consequences. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. Well, Brian, and I think I'll just go on out and sin because God already knew I was going to sin. Hmm. Interesting concept. That sounds like a hardness of heart. And God will harden whom he will and whom he will, he will have compassion. It sounds to me like you're not a true born-again believer because you have not a heart that says, God, who am I that you've saved me? I want to live for the one who's died for me. We reason thus, if one died for all, then all should die to no longer live for themselves. It doesn't sound to me like you are a new creation in Christ because the new creation in Christ, as Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I do, and the things I don't want to do, Things I do want to do, I don't. You know how it is. Romans 7, we already covered that. <laughs> but what does he say? There's no good thing that dwells in me. Hold it. That's not true. There's no good thing in my flesh because inwardly, he says, the willing is present to do. Is that inward presence there that says, I want to do the will of God? Then he goes on and says in Romans chapter 8, this is how you know you're truly born again. How? God's Spirit testifying to your spirit that you truly are a son of God. How do you know? Those who are the children of God are led by the Spirit. If you're not led by the Spirit, you're not a child of God. Very simple. It's a genuine, real work that took place. Now, he's talking to believers in chapter 9. Because the non-believer finds wickedness with God. Not fair! I was chosen for hell before I even had a chance to say anything about it. Interesting. Who said you were chosen for hell? You did. I didn't say you were chosen for hell. Didn't you say, whom God will, he'll harden? Yes. Well, I don't believe in God. Oh, well, I guess maybe you're right then. It's not fair. It's fair to me. Well, what if I want to receive Christ? Go ahead, receive him right now. Ask him to come into your life. I don't want to. Okay, well, then you're hardened. God's word is true. He has compassion on whom he will, and whom he wills he hardened. You're a perfect testimony of that. I don't think it's fair. I think it's wonderful. I don't think it's fair either, but I think it's wonderful. Because on me, he's had compassion. Well, that's not fair. See, you should have had compassion on me. Well, ask him into your life. Do you know you're a sinner? Yes. Do you know you're destroying your life? Yes. Do you want to turn to Christ and turn from that wicked way? No then you're hardening your heart to God and God will therefore confirm your hardness. Well, which came first? Did God harden me or did I harden myself? Does it really matter? You're going to hell. Do you want to sit around and talk about theological perspective of God's infinite mind? I don't know. I'm not infinite. I can't tell you how it worked. All I know is you lose. I don't want to lose. Then give your life to Christ. Okay, I think I will. Well, he had compassion on you. Whom he wills, he had compassion. So it does come down very practically to your choice. Now, 
to the wicked person, to the non-believer reading this, they just find accusations against God. To us, we say, thank you, Lord, for being unfair in a wonderful way. Now, in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Now, the carnal mind says, okay, I've got it figured out. God already knows what everybody's going to do before they do it. Therefore, everybody's in God's perfect will. Hitler was supposed to be Hitler because God knew he was going to be Hitler. So God was in, Hitler was in God's perfect will by being Hitler. What do you mean? Well, ask God before the foundations of the world. God, is Hitler going to be evil? Yes, he is. Therefore, he's in God's perfect will. Because he made Hitler, knowing Hitler would be Hitler, knowing that Hitler would be evil, therefore he made Hitler to be evil, and he's therefore was in God's perfect will by being evil. No. Just because God knows the future doesn't mean God makes the future. And so for you to say that God made me to be evil is absolutely false. And this is the point he makes in verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if? God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels for wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So he comes back and he says, well, it really comes back down to you as a piece of dirt. You know, we are the same elements that are in the dirt. The same 17 elements found in dirt are also in your human body. The same chemical components, 78% nitrogen, 28% oxygen, and 1% argons and other gases, you are going to decompose right back down to dirt. So you really were a piece of clay in God's hand. Now, he takes this out of um, Isaiah. And let's turn over there to Isaiah chapter 45. And let's look in context what Paul is saying here. And he's talking to a backslidden Israel who's not wanting to follow God. In Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45 verse 5. interesting chapter because here he names Cyrus as king of Babylon or actually the Medo-Persian Empire 200 years before he was ever born and he names him by name before he was even born but there in verse 5 he says I am the Lord and there is no other there is no God besides me I will gird you though you have not known me that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is none, no other. I form the light. I create the darkness. I make peace. I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all things. Rain down, you heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who formed it, Why are you making? What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, Why are you begetting me? Or to his mother, Why have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, Ask me if things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands and you command me. It's an awesome, awesome chapter. But what's going on here? The people are not wanting to recognize him as God. They're not wanting to submit to him as Lord. And he comes and, and they're submitting to these other gods. They're submitting to these other concepts of life. 
And he comes back and he and he says to them, there's one God. And you are going to be standing before that one God ultimately in judgment. And you're saying, well, you know, let's let's reason together here, God. Let's let's intellectualize. And I'm going to checkmate God intellectually. That's that's the point. I'm going to figure out this reasoning. Can God make a rock too big for himself to pick up? Ha ha, if he can, then he's not God because he can't pick up the rock. He's not all powerful. Well, no, he can't make the rock. Oh, then he can't do anything. He's not ever, he can't. Therefore, he's either not big enough to make a rock he can't big up, make that he can't pick up, or if he does make it, then he can't pick it up. Therefore, either way, he's not all powerful. So there can't be a God. Oh, gee, you got me. There must not be a God. I'll go eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die. It's just stupidity. What are they really asking in that question? It's illogical. It's perfect English grammar, but it makes no sense. It would be like me asking you, is red faster than green? I am sure red is faster than green, especially on Sundays. Prove me wrong. It doesn't make any sense. It's like... If there's really a God, then he could make a round square. It doesn't make sense. There is no logic to it. It's, it's babble. Because the definition of a square is that it is square. If you change that definition, it is no longer a square. It's illogic. In fact, you even think that question up says you're stupid. If you're saying, can an all-powerful God be less than powerful, you just lost it. It's, it's stupid to even think. It's not, it's not even proper logic. It may make a perfect English grammatical sentence, but it has no logic. It cannot be answered because there's no logic in it to answer the question. It's just babble. Well, can God sin? No, I can't do everything. Why would a perfect God want to be less than perfect? Can he do it? No. Well, then he can't do everything. Okay, he can. Aha, then he's not a perfect God because he sinned. It's illogic, folks. It doesn't make sense. But you can go to the university today and they're overthrowing people's faith on these very same stupid questions. And basically the question here in Romans chapter 9 is, can God be God and get away with it? And the point is, who's going to stop him? <laughs> he is God. There is no other greater. There is no other higher. There is no one that can say to him, just like a child coming out of the womb, saying, hey, you can't bear me. What choice do you really have? Who are you? And this is the point. It would be like the potter making a plate. And all of a sudden the plate says, ah, I want to be a cup. <laughs> who, who are you? You're, you're a piece of dirt. <laughs> and this is, this is God's point of view. Who are you to talk to the holy? Who are you to talk to the infinite? He'll just take you and <laughs> make you a dirt clod. Just throw you out and dry. He didn't have to make you exist. He gave you the gift of life. He died on a cross with your wicked sins. How can we find any injustice with God? Look at this world he made, how beautiful it is. Look at the fact that you are alive today. No greater gift can anybody give anybody than life. And not only has he given you life, but he's willing to cover over all of your sins by his own blood, through his own torturous death. And then you're going to say there's fault with God? There can be no fault with God. He's done above and beyond what anybody could ever ask of him. So can the clay find fault in the potter because he made him a plate rather than a... There's no evil in it. What if God made man for destruction? Even in that, would that be evil? And by the way, folks, 
the English doesn't do verse 22 justice. Because in the Greek, which we do not have in the English, the Greek is in the middle voice, which makes it a reflective action. So the very last statement in verse, it should read this way, and you make a note of this in your Bible, it should read this way. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath who prepared themselves for destruction? You see, Pharaoh hardened his heart. He prepared his own destruction. So is God on the line because you didn't choose him? No, he's not. Did God know that you wouldn't choose him? Did God know that he, you would choose him? God knows everything. Can we live in that realm? No, we can't. If you are a non-believer here tonight, it's going against you. Well, is there in righteousness God? None. How do you know? Who's going to find him fault if there is? How do we know? Because his nature is love and everything God does is love. How do you know that? Because he told me. How can you trust him? Who's going to, what are you going to say if he's not trustworthy? He's God. You can't go any higher. There's nobody else that you can go to. There's not another court. There's not another judge. There's not another hearing. You are but a piece of clay. If God is not a God of love, what are you going to do? What, where else are you going to turn? What, what are you going to do about it? There's nothing you can do about it. It's illogic even for you to consider that. There is no other. There is no else. There's no place else to turn. If God is not a God of love, it doesn't matter because there's nowhere else for you to go anyway. He is a God of love. So therefore, your question's invalid. Well, what if a square is really round? It's not. Well, how do you know? Because the definition is a square is a circle. Or <laughs> a circle is a... <laughs> A circle is round. A square is square. God is God. Well, what do we know about God? We know what his word has told us. He's a God of love. He's a God of beauty. He's a God of perfection. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God of righteousness. Well, how do you know you got the right God? Go look at the other gods. They're all illogical. There is no religion that's logical. You want to be a part of the Hindu religion? That says that we are all gods. You've got to look inside. Have you ever looked inside you? There is no God there, folks. But besides that, think about it. What's the definition of God? You have always had to exist and always will exist. How can I look inside me and find something that's always... Have you always existed? You know you haven't. You had a beginning of time. It's illogic. But where are they taking you? Hinduism says that you'll reincarnate into a better life form if you're a better person. How do, it could never start it. Think about it. It could have never began. How did you get the first people? They had to reincarnate, but where did they come from? It never could have had a beginning. Life could have never started. How do you know what you're going to... In other words, let's say a caterpillar is a low life form. According to that, the reason you became a low life form is because in the previous life, you were bad. So you say in the first generation of people, were there, was there suffering? Was there death? Was there hardship? There has to be because you can't be reincarnated, right? You got to die, <laughs> right? You got to die in order to reincarnate and it's happening. So therefore, in the first generation, there had to be death, which is a bad thing according to them. It never could have started. And that wipes out right there about 75% of the religions that are in the world. You guys caught that? Reincarnation never could have begun because you can't have a beginning of it since... Well, anyway, try, read, listen to the tape. But <laughs> even if it did exist, where are they trying to get you? Hinduism is trying to get you to the highest life form. You know what that is? A cow. Someday, if you live right, you'll be a cow. And then after that, you get to go into nirvana, which is nothing. So after all those years of reincarnation, where do you end up? Kansas. 
<laughs> it's illogical, and you can take every religion. It's it's ridiculous. Same with Mormonism. Before you can be a man, you got to be a god. But before you can be a a god, or before you can be a god, you have to be a man. But you, before you can be a man, you had to be created by a god. How could it start? It can't start. Mormonism is illogical, and you can take each and every religion. So what do we say? God is God. You can accept it or you can reject it. It's that simple. But what do we know? We know this, that God is a God of mercy. How do we know? Because he's had mercy on some. Do you tonight want to have the mercy of God? Then receive it. If you don't want to receive it, it's because you have a hard heart. Is God in play with that hard heart? The Bible says yes. Do you find that unrighteous with God? Tough. Who are you going to go to? Who's going to back your cause up? Who's, you know, what army are you going to get to go fight against God? There's only one logical answer, and that is submit unto him. And if you don't have, you don't have a heart, or you have a hard heart tonight, I would go home tonight, I would get on your face, and I would cry out to God, saying, God, please soften my heart. Please take this callous heart, this hard heart, and make it soft. Because let me tell you something. There is a real hell. And there is a real heaven. And everybody's going to one of those two places. Do you know him tonight? It's that simple. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you right now. And we do ask in Jesus' name that you would enlighten our hearts this evening that we come before you and we know you're a sovereign God, that your love never ends for us, that your mercies new every morning. And to us who are born again, this chapter 9 is wonderful, that before the foundations of the world, you knew us. Before the foundations of the world, you had planned to give mercy unto us. Before the foundations of the world, you already saw us in heaven with you for all of eternity. And we're in awe at this because so often we struggle and we think, God, are you going to give up on us? But we already know that the end from the beginning is spoken. And you'll have compassion on whom you will. And you had compassion on us. And this we rejoice. Lord, if there's any here tonight that don't know you, Lord, please Help them to see that you're not an unjust God. You're not an unloving God. That you're a merciful God. And you wish to have mercy on all those who will come to you. And of course, we know you knew that before the foundations of the world. That they would come to you. Right now, Lord, please open their hearts. If there's anyone here tonight that needs to make Jesus Christ their Lord. And there's a sense of awe, a sense of fear in this passage tonight. That's good. The beginning of knowledge is to fear God. The beginning of wisdom is to fear God. That's the place to start. Call out to him now. Dear Father in heaven, you're awesome in all your ways. You truly are the beginning and the end. And there's none that you give account to. There's none that you're indebted to. You are the always existed and you always will exist. And I know that you're a God of love. That you sent your son to demonstrate your love by taking my sins 2,000 years in advance upon the cross for me. You've already paid for my sins. And I come now to collect that you would forgive my sins by your grace, by your mercy. Forgive me for living my wicked way. And I know that I must follow the awesome God who created me with a plan and a purpose. Come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Thank you. Bless all your saints this night through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Bye-bye.